Today's readings from the Word of God come from Exodus, 1 John, and the Gospel of John. Please listen as we read the scripture. Our first reading comes from Exodus chapter 30, verses 30 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body and do not make any other oil using the same formula. It is sacred, and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from their people. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading um, is from, from the Word of God, comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. But you have an anointing, anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son and has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from his remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. As you are able, please stand. Our final reading from the word of God comes from the Gospel of John, chapters 12, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scripture. Once again, that is John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't the perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good evening. My name is Kent, and my wife Trisha and I have been attending Anchor Bay. Um, it was one year in November, and it's great to call this church our home. About 18 months ago, I retired after 40 years of serving as a pastor, and, and so beginning this new chapter in our life, we were thinking about what values we were looking for in a, in a church to call our home as, as parishioners, as members of the congregation. And as we were going through our list, we talked about the importance of finding a church that loves Jesus. And then we talked about the importance of a church that puts the love of Jesus into practice by ministering and reaching out to the most vulnerable outside the walls of the church. And then we talked about the importance of having a wise and caring pastors. And we found all those ingredients here at Anchor Bay, and it is truly a privilege uh, and a joy uh, to be part of this congregation. Let us pray together as we enter into the word. God of grace and God of hope, breathe your spirit into us. And as we explore your word, as we enter into the story of Mary of Bethany, may her story speak into our story, encourage us, bless us, and restore us. With a spirit of anticipation, we pray all this in the name of the Christ. And may God's people say, amen. So this night, we begin our journey into Lent with people of faith across the globe. And during this six-week season culminating with Easter, we reflect upon our relationship to God, to God's people, and to our shared call to learn to live and love to the best of our abilities like Jesus. And on Ash Wednesday, on this sacred evening, we begin that journey together. And our guide this night is the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We begin in the house of Lazarus with his sisters Martha and Mary. Lazarus Martha and Mary lived just a few miles outside of Jerusalem in a village called Bethany. In John chapter 11, which Pastor Bryn uh, explored with us on Sunday, we realize and we recognize that Jesus was friends with this family. And in that chapter, we learn that Lazarus had been ill. And, in one of, and then he had died, and in one of Jesus' most dramatic miracles, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Not only does the raising of Lazarus foreshadow Jesus' own death and resurrection, it also sets into 
into uh, practice the events that are about to unfold, plotting to arrest Jesus, plotting to put him to death by religious leaders who were jealous or wary of his growing influence. But on this night, all those events are in the near future, but on this night, Jesus gathers with Lazarus at the table and with Mary and Martha and their extended family and friends to celebrate that Lazarus has been restored to life, that he is with them. It's a joyous celebration. And into this setting, we read and hear verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What a story. What wild and evocative imagery. And it begs a series of questions. If we had been at that particular dinner party that night, what would we have thought? Would we have applauded? Would we have been confused? Would be uncomfortable? Or would we be outraged by Mary's extravagant act? A few things to note. Mary's gift is extravagant. The cost of pure nard imported from India costs more than an average worker's annual wage. Second, Mary breaks custom by anointing the feet rather than Jesus' head, which was customary. Mary lets down her hair in public, breaking another cultural norm. And then she uses her hair to dry Jesus' feet, breaking another cultural norm, for drying the feet of another was considered to be the lowest of the lows role. It's a job reserved for the lowliest of servants. And here was Mary wiping and cleaning the very feet of Jesus. And some people, I'm sure, were outraged. Mary's witness that night, I imagine, for many was unsettling, uncomfortable. And certainly that was true for Jesus' disciple Judas. Judas, who was the was a treasurer for the disciples. And scripture, as an aside, said he was helping himself to the purse and that he was soon to betray Jesus. But it is Judas who rebukes, who ridicules Mary's extravagant act. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. Judas, I think, was speaking for many that night. Mary was being unreasonable, impractical, extravagant, even reckless, and disrespectful of the cultural norms of the time. Judas was saying on behalf of many, I would imagine that night, who does she think she is? I think, I think Judas would have fit in with New Englanders like me. I grew up in Rhode Island. We like to call ourselves the frozen chosen. And here's how I was raised in my home state of Rhode Island. I was taught in my family of origin, it's better not to be too expressive with one's emotions. My dad, who was a deacon in, in a church that I grew up in, when it came time for the passing of the peace, he would always slip out into the hallway 
He said it was too touchy-feely, too much emotion. What would he have thought of Mary or Bethany in this extravagant act? I think, too, in my family of origin, it's all about respecting traditions. And in my family of origin, it was also about being prudent with money. It's about being careful. It was about saving for a rainy day. I wonder what my dad would have thought about Mary of Bethany blowing all of this money on this perfume. A one and done. I can imagine what he would have said. What about you? What do you think about Mary's extravagant act? Now, the Quaker theologian and poet and teacher Parker Palmer says that there are two worldviews competing for our hearts and our imagination. The first worldview and the dominant is what he calls the economy of scarcity. The economy of scarcity teaches that there is only so much wealth and resources to go around. This mindset teaches that we need to take care of ourselves and our own first. And if there is anything left over, we may choose to share some of that leftover surplus with others. Governments are often governed by such a mindset. You must take care of your nation first. And if we have any extra, we may choose to share with others. This was particularly true in this most recent pandemic, where wealthy governments, including our own, purchased the majority of vaccines on the world mar market even before those vaccines were produced. And then they stockpiled more than was needed and demand required, while developing countries went without. I serve on the board of a public health ministry in Nicaragua called Amos Health and Hope. And once the vaccines were developed uh, here in the States and, and in other places, the people in Nicaragua, which is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti, couldn't get the vaccine. All the wealthy countries had, had hoarded that, those vaccines for themselves. And it was only later in the, the, uh, the most dramatic stages of, of the pandemic that the wealthy countries began to share. For the first two years of the pandemic, once the vaccine was available, only 5% of the population in Nicaragua was able to get a vaccine. And the impact on the other 95% of the population, which was always already a poor country with a very limited medical system, they were decimated. This is the economy of scarcity in practice. But families and even churches are often governed by a scarcity mindset, right? By word and especially by practice, we say there's only so much wealth and so many resources to go about. We must be careful. We must be prudent. We can't afford to be extravagant. And Parker Palmer points out that scarcity is fueled by fear. Fear of not having enough. Fear of what we have being taken from us. Fear of what might happen. And an underlying theological fear that oftentimes we don't even acknowledge to ourselves, what if God doesn't show up?
Judas on, at that dinner table was operating from a place of scarcity. And he was driven by fear. Why hasn't the money from this perfume been given to the poor? For Judas, it was either or choice to anoint Jesus' feet or to give to the poor. With his scarcity mindset, it couldn't be both. How about you? And how about me? Do we operate out of a sense of scarcity and a sense of fear? I know it was baked into my, my way of thinking in my family of origin. How about yours? In contrast to Judas, we meet Mary, extravagant Mary. Mary was governed by what Parker Palmer calls the gospel of abundance, which is the opposite of the economy of scarcity. The gospel of abundance believes that in God's economy, there's always more. And I'd like to just step aside for a moment, and I'd like to point out that the gospel of abundance is different from that which is referred to as the prosperity gospel. In my thinking, the prosperity gospel is the antithesis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Whereas the prosperity gospel focuses on what Jesus can do for me and mine, the gospel of abundance is all about what we can do for others. It's about selflessness. It's about giving away for the cause of love. The gospel of abundance, the opposite of the economy of scarcity, its foundation is the deep-seated belief that God's grace and love is limitless, rooted in Jesus' teaching to share what we have with the most vulnerable. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Whatever you do unto the most vulnerable of my sisters and brothers, you do unto me. And later, later in the gospel story, we have at, at the Last Supper, we have Jesus mirroring and echoing the extravagant love of Mary taking off his outer gar garments and getting down on his knees and taking a washcloth and washing the feet of his disciples. The humblest of acts, the lowliest task of the lowliest servant. Jesus is modeling the gospel of abundance, of limitless love and limitless compassion. And that's what Mary of Bethany is doing in this evening's story as well. The gospel of abundance foundation. Is it rooted in you? Is it rooted in me? And what about our church? Is the gospel of abundance alive here as well? And I don't know about you, but as I've mentioned, I see that mindset of scarcity to be deep, deeply rooted in my worldview. I think the Judases of the world are able to get my attention and play the fear card, the what-ifs. You have to protect your, yourself and your own. Yet I also believe this doesn't have to be the way. I think Mary's act of extravagant love and generosity and service to Jesus shows us a different way, a better way, a way of freedom. Do we believe that to be true? Jesus replies to Judas in verse 7, Leave her alone. 
It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus reminds his followers that serving the poor will always be a priority, and yet he also also knows that his earthly ministry is drawing to a close. Mary, by anointing him, is symbolically preparing for his funeral. He understands instinctively that his path will be leading him to the cross, that the cross will, and upon that cross, he will take upon himself the sins and the atrocities of the world. Upon that cross, he will choose to take upon himself the violence, the greed, the self-centeredness, the pettiness, the prejudice, the judgmentalism of the human condition. He will take upon himself all this and more as he offers the gift of forgiveness rooted in God's unconditional love for us all. The cross will not be a place of violence and fear, but a vehicle for grace. This extravagant love of Jesus upon the cross is what Mary, in her own personal way, responds to and honors. The way of Jesus is governed not by scarcity, not by fear. Rather, it reflects the limitless love and grace of God. This is the gospel of abundance that Jesus speaks of and bears witness to. With her own eyes, Mary saw her brother Lazarus restored to life. This is the good news that she can't help but respond to in the only way she knows how. She lets down her hair. She breaks open the perfume and she anoints Jesus' feet for what is to come. Imagine. Has there ever been a time when you have received the gift of God's extravagant love? Do you remember what that felt like? And has there ever been a time when you've been so moved by the gospel of abundance that you too, like Mary, offered up your gift of extravagant love to glorify God and to bless others? Do you remember what it felt like? When I was a young pastor, I was serving a church in Vallejo, California. In Vallejo, California, that, that town, I was serving in a, kind of a rough part of town. The church was on S- Sonoma Boulevard. Prostitution uh, was uh, taking place just outside uh, on the steps of the church during the week. There was a lot of drug trafficking going on. A lot of homeless neighbors that slept in the alcove outside of the church and on the steps. And on Sunday morning, Folks would come in from the congregation, and our homeless neighbors would come in as well. People would come in, and they'd been cold, they'd been just struggling to make it through the night, and they would come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning, and they would sit in the back, sometimes to listen to the music, sometimes to listen to the sermon, more often for a hot cup of coffee, and to stretch out in the back pews and to catch some rest, to catch some sleep. And the person who made sure that everything went according to plan was the head deacon. And his name was Bernie. And his last name was Slaughter. Bernie Slaughter. Just by the name, it commands some attention. And Bernie was a retired United States Marine Corps colonel. 
And he was in his early 70s, but he still conducted himself with a sense of dignity and a sense of purpose. He was about six foot four inches. He had a barrel chest. He always dressed in a black suit with a starched white shirt that was blindingly white and a deep blue tie. He had a crew cut, silver hair, and you didn't mess with Bernie. He made sure the trains went on time and everyone behaved themselves. So there I am, a young pastor, and it's Communion Sunday. The chalice for the cup of grace and the basket for the broken bread is before us. And I'm reminding us of the brokenness of Jesus upon the cross and how that relates to the brokenness of the bread. And I talk about the cup of grace. And just before I invite the people to come forward, to come down the aisle, down that center aisle, there comes one of our homeless neighbors, Edgar. Now, Edgar was a sweetheart when he was sober. But when he was using or when he was, uh, when he was drunk, he could be fiery. He could be provocative. He was unpredictable, sometimes even violent. And it was clear that Edgar was high. And he started walking down the center aisle, and he was, he was just weaving from side to side, bouncing against one end of the pew to the other. And everyone watched. And I'm trying to think, what will I do? What will Edgar do as Edgar walked down and weaved down the aisle? And just before he came to the altar table, which was right before me, he leaned on the side of the pew, and then he let his weight down. He curled up in a ball and went to sleep. And he began to snore. Think of the ocean just kind of crashing on a, in a stormy day on Dane Street Beach. It was a loud snore. And I was wondering what to do. He was blocking the aisle. And then I saw retired United States Marine Corps Bernie Slaughter coming down the aisle. And everyone watched Bernie. If we were putting bets that day, we would, uh, most of us would bet that Bernie would grab Edgar by the back of the neck and drag him out. And I'm trying to think, what do I do? How do I stop Bernie? So all of this is racing through my mind. It's really just a matter of seconds. It seemed much longer. And then Bernie did something that surprised us all. He leaned on the side of the pew and slowly let his six-foot frame down onto the ground next to Edgar. And then he gently patted Edgar's shoulder as Edgar snored. And then he looked at me and he said, carry on. And so I invited the people to come forward. And the people came by and they gingerly stepped around Edgar and stepped around Bernie. And we shared the bread, broken for all. And we shared the cup of grace. At this point, as people are moving forward, Edgar wakes up. And I don't know what he was wrestling with that day, but he begins to weep. He begins to sob. And then Bernie surprised us once again. He took Edgar into his arms, and he held him. And he stroked Edgar's hair like a father strokes the hair of a child who is struggling. 
we were transported, we were transformed that day by the love of these two men, of how they came together as brothers in Christ. And it was as, as if that love filled like a wonderful perfume every part of that room. And it's been nearly 40 years since that event took place. But I remember that moment as if it were yesterday, that we were in the very presence of the gospel of abundance, of the limitless love of God. This night, Ash Wednesday, marks the beginning of our shared six-week journey towards the promise of Easter. As with Mary, we are invited to reflect upon the ways God continues to speak into each of our lives. Ash Wednesday calls us back to the path from which we have strayed, refocusing our attention on that which is good, lasting, and true. We are invited to turn from fear to hope, from scarcity to abundance. And in a few moments, we will be invited by our pastors to come forward and be anointed with ash, reminding us that we come from God, that we belong to God, and in time, all of us will return to the eternal embrace of our God, an embrace that is limitless and full. This is the good news. Thanks be to God, and may God's people say, Amen.